All right, let's get into God's word. So we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 12, and we're going to be starting in verse 13. I don't have these verses initially up on the screen for us, but I want to read these verses for us, and then I'm going to come back and make a couple of opening comments. So they're not going to be up on the screen directly, but let's read verses 13 through 17, and then I'm going to reset. So this is Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Verse 15, knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. May God bless the reading of his word. All right, kids, especially elementary kids that that are in the room. Have you guys ever heard of a little game called Would You Rather? All right, so a little Would You Rather. Great road trip game. Great game, who knows, maybe probably didn't show up at United Weekend, but may have in certain, this would you rather, would you rather do X or Y? And usually you're presented with two really bad choices that you're trying to, trying to pick between. So a couple of options here. Would you rather lick a dirty trash can or the bathroom floor? You know, given the option, probably gonna go with neither. Would you rather have one eye in the middle of your head or two noses? One eye two noses. Two noses, thank you for, this is the participation we're looking for. This is perfect. Would you rather, would you, and I would pick that same thing, so would you rather have a pet dinosaur or a pet dragon? I mean, just pick, pick both, like you can't, you can't go wrong at at that point, so uh, all right, kids, get ready for this one. Would you rather not be able to watch TV for a year or not be allowed to eat any sweets for a year? Could you go without sweets or TV? So uh, most of you don't watch TV anymore. You just watch your phone. So like that would be your, that'd be your loophole. You guys never watch TV anyway, so it wouldn't matter. Um, I was listening to a sports podcast this week, and they were talking about, would you rather be Jalen Hurts with a bad shoulder or Patrick Mahomes with a bad angle? You know, if you're going to play quarterback in the conference championship, which one do you want to have going, going wrong? Sometimes in life, we talk about being between a rock and a hard place. You're in a situation in life where you're given two choices and neither one of them look very good. Like if I go this way, it's no good. If I go this way, it's no good. What am I going to do? Here's the thing. The verses that we're looking at in Mark chapter 12, we're going to look at two stories here in Mark chapter 12, and in both of them, people are trying to trap Jesus with a would you rather. Would you rather do this or this? And they both look like bad options, but you need to look at how Jesus responds to this. If you're taking notes this morning, students, I appreciate how many of you guys take notes, and as you think about taking notes this morning, there's going to be two main themes for both stories, okay? One theme, the first story is about taxes and and authority, and the second theme is going to be about marriage. So if you're taking notes and you're thinking about point one, point two, first story is about taxes, second is about marriage. Underneath both of those, we're going to look at a foundational doctrine for that issue, 
and we're going to look at a transformational doctrine. So we're going to think about foundation and transformation. Now, anytime we get to the United Weekend, I'm always realizing students are coming in, leaders are coming in, and they have not slept very much at this point in the weekend. And so I always want to make sure it's something that you can really connect to. And I looked at that and thought, huh, taxes and marriage. Like if I'm trying to keep teenagers awake on Sunday morning, I'm not sure taxes and marriage were necessarily the two topics. But students, if you'll stick with me, I think you'll find the way that these connect to your life. I think you'll see the application of God's word, and, and God will show you through the scripture, what he wants you to understand about the gospel and what it means to know and follow Christ. Verse 13, let's jump back in here. Let's, let's do this process of working through the verses, understanding what these doctrines are that, are that are found here. Verse 13, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Okay, there's the word trap. So we know that as these people approach Jesus, they're not coming in good faith. They're coming to try to make him look bad. They're going to trap him with a would you rather, and they're both bad options. The Pharisees and the Herodians have already been mentioned in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 3. And these are two groups that should not get along except they have a common enemy in Jesus. You guys know how this works at school or at work. You have two people that normally would be enemies, but they find a common enemy and it brings them together. The Herodians, they like Roman power. They want the Romans to be in power. This is working for them. They're, they're tied in to the people that have political power. The Pharisees, they're focused on religious reform. They don't like the Roman rule. They're, they're trying to work back against this Roman rule. So you have two groups that don't like each other. They're both going to try to trap Jesus. Verse 14, they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Eye roll. Like you can just, the syrupy flatter is bad at this point. Like, he, like they're, they're coming to Jesus. Now here's the irony. What they're saying about Jesus is actually accurate. It's true and they're trying to put him in a situation where whatever answer he gives, he's going to look bad. But the flattery here is just way over the top, way too much. Middle of 14, what happens? What do they say? Here's their trap. Is it lawful? Is it lawful according to God's word? Is it the right thing to do to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now this tax that they're talking about, is what's called a poll tax. It, it applies to every person who's registered in the census. And so in the year AD 6, the Romans established this particular census and everyone who was registered in the census had to pay this particular amount of money. And so this tax is set up and these people are coming to Jesus and say, should we really be paying this tax? Here's this pagan government telling us to pay this money. Is it the right thing to do or not? Verse 15. Knowing their hypocrisy, we're going to get to that in just a second. Knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Okay, now make sure you understand the test here. The test is that if Jesus says they should pay the taxes, the Pharisees are not going to like that. He's going to alienate the people who have been following him because now he looks pro-Roman. He looks pro-pagan government. He's saying that we should pay this tax. We should give in to this worldly political power. If he says, don't pay the tax, what's the problem with that? 
well, he's a revolutionary. He's going to get taken in by the Romans. He looks like he's pushing back against his power, and he's going to get pulled up on charges of sedition or treason or something like that. So he's in a situation where if he says pay the tax, well, that's going to alienate one group. If he says don't pay the tax, that's going to alienate another group. And back in AD year 6, when this tax was imposed, there was someone who caused a revolt against the Roman government, and you know what happened? Tons of people were killed because of it. The Romans came in and completely squashed this revolution, and so the people were aware of this. Now, what does it mean by a denarius? I've got a picture of a denarius for you on the screen there on the left side. A denarius was the coin that equated to one day's wage. So however much money you think about making in one day for a regular job, a denarius was about one day's wage. On the front of the coin was a picture of the emperor, a picture of Caesar, and it called him son of divine Augustus. So don't miss this. You have a coin to pay this tax, and on the front it says son of God. That's going to be a problem for the Jewish people. That's going to be a problem for those who are following Jesus. On the back, Tiberius is a great emperor because he put a picture of his mom on the back of the coin. So his mom is on the back of the coin, and it says high priest. Do you think that's going to frustrate the Jewish people? Absolutely it is, because here's this pagan coin that's being used almost as a religious devotion to the Roman Empire. Verse 16. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Now why is it so funny that they brought a coin to Jesus? Because remember what Jesus said in the previous verse. He knew their hypocrisy. These people are coming to him, these Pharisees, like these great religious leaders who are so pure, and they're carrying around their back pocket this pagan coin. So the old joke about this is this was like asking for a lighter at a Baptist deacon's meeting, okay? <laughs> now, I don't know that that applies anymore, and I'm saying that applies to, to our deacons, but this is like asking for a lighter at a Baptist deacon's meeting. This is like, ooh, I don't want to admit that I actually have one of those, but, but I do. So uh, these guys, these, these Pharisees, they're acting all religious, but here they're carrying around this pagan coin. Verse 17, Jesus said, Render to the Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Jesus says, I know this coin has the image of Caesar on it, so just give it back to Caesar. But you have the image of God on you. So your whole life is devoted to God. This little coin, this temporary coin, give it back to Caesar. That's fine. Your life, though, is devoted to God. Here's trap number one. Trap number one has to do with how do we, as Christians, relate to government around us? How do we relate to people who are in authority? Should we be paying taxes to the government? How do we understand these things? This is where we're making that, anytime you study the Bible, students, I know you know this, adults, you know this, we study the Bible, you want to say, do I understand what it meant in that situation to understand what was being communicated, and then how do I understand the way it applies to my life? So we have a situation here where Jesus is being trapped about his relationship with political authority. In 2023, we can feel that same tension. 
how do I live as a Christian in this world under a political structure, under a government that may not always be pleasing to the Lord? Should I just do whatever I want to, or should I be obedient to this government? How do we navigate these things? And it even drops down to the issues of how do I relate to authority? How do I relate to my teachers? How do I relate to my school administrators? How do I relate to my parents? How do I relate to law enforcement? How do I relate to my boss? What does it mean to live in a world where you're under authority and yet you realize that all of that authority has to fall under God? Doctrine number one. The foundational doctrine for being able to deal with this is the doctrine of creation. Point number one, underneath taxes and authority is creation. If we remember that God is the creator of all things, which means he is in control of any human authority and human government. All human government exists under the authority of God. And we have been created in the image of God. You can have a coin that has the emperor's picture on it, but every one of us bears the image of God because we've been created in his image. And so we are able to live in this world under a human government, submissive to that human government, but doing that is not compromising your faith. It's just demonstrating trust in the Lord. And the way we live under that authority, the way you, the way you relate to your teachers, and your parents, and your coaches, and law enforcement, and bosses, shows what we really believe about God, and the way that he is in control, and he is due all of our devotion and our obedience. So right here, we have this foundational doctrine. I want to walk you through a few verses that are really helpful for this. We're not going to spend a lot of time on these verses. I just want to put them in front of you so you can jot them down to the side, and anytime you're thinking about this issue of Christianity and government, Christianity and politics, these are the passages in the New Testament that I think are particularly helpful. Romans chapter 13. Let me find these in front of me. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For as there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And then Romans 13, skipping down to verse 6. For because of this... You also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Second passage, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. So Romans chapter 13, and then 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Same idea. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And then finally, 1 Timothy chapter 2. So we have Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, and 1 Timothy 2, as we're trying to think about politics and government, politics and, and Christianity. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. 
and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Because God is creator and is sovereign over all human institutions and governments, we can live under those governments understanding that our ultimate allegiance is given to God himself. Now, so that's the foundation. What transforms the way we do that? The cross. First doctrine I want you to get is the doctrine of creation. That helps us know how we live under governments. Second doctrine I want you to get is the cross. Here is what is so beautiful about this and so powerful. And I've, I've been trying to think about this week, this, this connection of the story we looked at and this idea. When Jesus came as king, he didn't come so that people would pay taxes to him he came so that he would pay our ransom. He would pay our debt. When Jesus comes as king, it transforms the way we think about government and economy and relationships with other people. He has come not to demand that we pay something to him. He has come to make the payment for us. And this transforms the way we think about living under authority and under government. How do you live under your parents? How do you live under your teachers? How do you live under your boss? How do you love, live under politicians? You live there as one who has been transformed by the cross of Jesus Christ. And so your life is not about how you're gonna overpower and overwhelm everyone. Your life is not about how you're trying to reach the top. Your life is about how can I serve others? How has the cross of Jesus transformed my life so I can go out into the world and live in a way that makes an impact for the kingdom of God? That's taxes. Now look at the next story, because it's related so close to this. Look at the next story, verse 18. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they come to ask a question. Okay, if you've been around church for a while, you know this terrible preacher joke, but let me just give it to you again in case you don't know it. How do you remember the Sadducees? Well, they don't believe in the resurrection, so they're sad, you see. It's so bad. Like, I, it's really, really bad. But, uh, but it helps. Like, what's the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees? The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They, they only hold on to the first five books of what we would call the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Scriptures. And so they're coming to Jesus, these Sadducees, people from a high social status, don't believe in the resurrection, and only hold to the first five books of what you would call your Bible. So they come to Jesus, and they ask him a question. Teacher, verse 19, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So this is picking up on the Old Testament law that if you have some brothers and your brother is married and there's no children left behind, you've got to step in for your brother to carry on his legacy. If you don't believe in the resurrection, all you have is your legacy at this point. And so th they're pushing this idea of legacy. Verse 20. So Jesus, let me give you a little, a little test here. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. This feels like, I tell you what this feels like. 
You know those games when you go to the Thunder game and there's the image up on the screen and they put the ball under a cup, but there's three cups and all the cups move around. They got the little red solo cups moving around trying to figure out where's the ball. It feels like they're doing that to Jesus. They're saying, Jesus, can you follow the story? Like, do you know what's going on here? Here were these seven brothers and a wife and they died. What's going on here? And then they ask the question in verse 23, after the woman dies. In verse 23, in the resurrection, now remember, do they believe in the resurrection? No, they don't believe in the resurrection. They're totally here to trip Jesus up. They want to make the resurrection look foolish. They're trying to make Jesus look bad. In the resurrection, Jesus, that you believe in, when, when all these guys and the wife rise again, whose wife is she going to be? For all seven of the brothers had her as wife. You might have seen the movie, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. This is one bride for seven brothers. And uh, what's going to happen after death? What's going to happen in the resurrection? What does Jesus say in verse 24? Jesus said to them, he's not happy at this point. <laughs> Jesus is not happy at this point. Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Okay, quick pause. You feel the force of that verse that what we think of as the social institution of marriage won't be the same in the new creation. And it says here that we will be like the angels. It doesn't say we become angels. Sometimes at funerals, uh, there can be confusion about what happens to a person after they die, and we sing funeral songs, and we have ideas that, that the person becomes an angel. We don't become angels after death. We only become like angels in the sense that the institution of marriage doesn't define our relationships. We don't, we're not related in that same way. Verse, 20, verse 26 and Jesus says, as for the dead being raised, this isn't a joke. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. <laughs> what a mic drop. Like you're just quite wrong about the way you're thinking about this. Okay, issue number two. Issue number two is how do we understand marriage and family? in the world that we live in. Some of these questions about what does it mean to understand marriage in this life and then what happens after we die? What, what's the purpose of marriage? If I'm single and desire to be married, what's the purpose of being married? If I'm already married and I'm trying to hold on and honor the Lord in this marriage, why do we have marriage? And then what happens after this life is finished? Okay, foundational doctrine for this is belief in the new creation. So we're point two, theme number two about marriage and family. What is the foundational doctrine for understanding this? You have to understand the idea of the new creation. That what we see and experience right now is not the end of the story. That a time will come where God's covenant with his people continues and the role of marriage in this life, in this world, to show people a picture of the gospel, to show people a picture of God's covenant with his people, that will be transformed in the new creation. That we, as God's people right now, many are called to marriage and show a picture of the gospel, but not everybody is called to marriage. So what does that say to you when you believe in the new creation? What it says to you is this life is not about gaining every experience that you would ever want to have, 
This life is not about living constantly for your own desires, for your own consumption, for your own experiences. This life is about how can I know God and live fully for him in whatever season I might be in, whether married or not married. There's this idea, many of you are familiar with the acronym FOMO, F-O-M-O, the idea of this fear of missing out. When we think about marriage, when we think about living in this world, if you don't have a belief in a new creation, that one day God will make all things new, your whole life now becomes about having as many experiences as possible or, or fulfilling every desire that comes up or trying to consume everything you can possibly consume. And we get immersed in that. But if we believe in a new creation, a life to come, this life is about how can I most honor and glorify Lord, the Lord with whatever he puts in front of me. And so if I'm married, I want to be completely faithful in that. If I'm not married, I'm not eaten up by that reality. I just want to honor the Lord in whatever he leads me to do. Whatever it is, it's realizing that this life, this world is not the end of the story. How do you get there, though? How do you get to that kind of belief? You have to have the next doctrine in place. You have to believe in the resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if there's no resurrection, man, eat, drink, be merry, do whatever you want to, we definitely shouldn't be gathered here right now. <laughs> like, this, there's no reason to be here right now without the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But if Jesus rose from the dead, and let's follow up with, and we believe that that happened, if Jesus rose from the dead, that transforms everything. That transforms everything about how we live. Students, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is what drives you to faithfulness in your life before him. I want to be faithful in my relationships. I want to be faithful with my sexuality. I want to be faithful with my money. I want to be faithful with my time. Everything that the Lord has put in front of me, daily, I want to be faithful in those because I have an eternal focus, because my life is not eaten up with having every experience or having everything that this world claims to offer. I'm living for something more. The power of Jesus and his resurrection is at work in my life. Adults, you think about your legacy. You think about what does it mean to honor the Lord and my family? What does it look like to approach the end of life? Think about how the resurrection of Jesus transforms that, changes what we live for, that we want, whether married or not married, whatever the season of life, God, the resurrection of Jesus Christ transforms my life. It makes me peaceful but not passive. It says I'm going to be faithful in this life. I'm going to live with the power of God at work in my life, knowing that he's imperfectly in control. I want you to see this, that he is enough. Whatever you're dealing with in life, he is enough. These doctrines, keep these in front of you. Creation, cross, resurrection, new creation. Man, if you get those, it provides a framework for everything you do in life. It transforms how you live now and how you live for all of eternity. Creation, cross, resurrection, new creation. Those provide the framework for our Christian life. They provide the framework for our church. So how do you live under the government? How do you live in relation to politics? Well, you live submissively because you know God's in control of all things. But we're also going to live shaped by the cross. And that's going to guide how we live. How do you think about marriage? Marriage is a great gift from a great God, but marriage is not ultimate. And so I'm going to live in such a way that I realize that there is resurrection and new creation life 
to come, that Jesus is going to transform all of that. If you're here this morning, and you're not married, and you're seeking God's will for your life, can I call you this morning to make sure that that relationship that you're in is leading you toward Jesus and not away? Because the need to have that relationship, the need to have that intimacy, the need to have that connection, it can become all-consuming and you lose sight of where we're going. You lose sight of the direction of your life. If you're here this morning and you're married, can I just give you some freedom to say the other person in that relationship, they're not God. They don't have to be your savior, but they're a great gift from a good God. And in that marriage, as you forgive one another, and love one another and serve one another, it becomes a picture of the gospel. If you're here this morning and you're worried about the future, you're worried about politics, government, economics, and let's be honest, in 2023, there's probably some reasons that those things get our attention. They're not overwhelming. Why? Creation, cross, resurrection, new creation. We have this framework to make sense of life. And I want to say one final thing before, before we wrap up here. Sometimes the thing that really trips us up in life when we think about the gospel, the thing that really gets our way, is many people live with this nagging feeling that I can never do enough. <laughs> like in, in my relationships with other people, in my Christian faith, in my job, with my kids, with my spouse, with my friends, like there's this feeling that I can never do enough. I'm always trying to prove myself. I'm always trying to make other people happy. I'm always trying to do enough to make myself right with God. Can I just tell you right now, based on everything we've seen this morning, he is enough. Not you. Not this need to always prove something. Not this need to always do something more. Not this need to always impress. Just to know that Jesus is enough. Politics and marriage, money and sex, power and pleasure, none of those things are going to be able to address your deepest needs. But Jesus has dealt with that through the cross and the resurrection. Nothing in this world is able to get to the core of our sin or, or overcome the reality of death except for the cross and resurrection of Jesus. He is enough. Would you trust him and would you follow him every day of your life? Let's pray together. Father, we know that we live in a world of politics and taxes. <laughs> the reality of taxes this time of year feels just right in front of us. Um, God, how as Christians do we relate to the government, relate to politics? We remember that you're creator, and we remember that our king came to die on a cross. And that changes everything about how we live in this world. God, let us live life shaped by the cross. That we gather together as your church to confess that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And God, as we think about marriage and sexuality and relationships and family and legacy and all of those things that so much of our life is bound up with, God, remind us that none of those things are ultimate. They all point to your kingdom that through the resurrection of Jesus, we remember that what we experience now is not the end of the story. And that doesn't devalue now, that drives us to be faithful now, to live fully in this world looking toward eternity. God, this morning, remind us that you are enough for all that we face in this world. And God, I pray if there's anybody here this morning who 
has never trusted in Jesus for salvation, God, that this morning they would know that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, all of our guilt and shame and fear, God, all of that, and he rose again so that we would have life and life forever. And God, I pray this morning that if someone has never made that commitment, that this would be the morning that they would do that. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.